Welcome to Defining Rules, a podcast about jobs you may have never heard of. I'm your host, Kate Barrett. Let's explore the possibilities of what's out there so that we can find our perfect role. Ooh, friends, are you in for a treat this week? We have Isabella on the podcast this week, and she is a professional matchmaker. She works remote and just gives us an inside look of what the matchmaking industry looks like in 2020. And I also pick her brain about dating and all of the things that she observes and sees in her clients. So very interesting episode for multiple reasons. If you find yourself single and dating using apps all those things. If you're partnered and curious about an inside look at those worlds, this is a great episode. And this covers all of the career from talking to a company and working with them to find a position that really fits your skills, working remote. I mean, there's just so much fun stuff that we cover. Let's get to it. Well, Isabella, welcome to the podcast. I'm very excited to have you on today. Thank you so much for having me. Would you start by telling us what your official job title is? Yes. So my official job title is matchmaker and um, multi-market recruiter. Sorry, I kind of like still laugh a little bit when I tell people I'm a matchmaker. It's so cool. And I can't wait to dive in and hear what that looks like in 2020. How would you define your role? Yeah. So... Basically, you know, if you think of a matchmaker as someone who is working face to face with clients, meeting clients, finding out what they're looking for, um, you know, setting them up on dates, scheduling the date, coordinating the date, I'm on the other side of that. So, whereas the matchmaker is working with the client, I'm working with the person that they're about to go on a date with. So, mostly what that looks like is I, the matchmakers come to me. And they tell me, okay, this is what we're looking for in a match. Um, This is our client, blah, blah, blah. And I just go out into the world and find someone that can go out with their client. Uh, So I do cold outreach to their potential matches. I bring them into the system, sometimes do the interviews. I haven't been doing as much of that lately because it's really time consuming and I just have so many um, clients that I'm working with. So yeah, it's it's very similar to kind of corporate recruitment if you're receiving an order from, you know, if you're headhunting and you're receiving an order from your salesperson. Um, But it's just more obviously on the side of romance. Wow. Would you, so you mentioned that there's the matchmaker who works directly with the client that is seeking a partner. What are some of the other roles that your company or various matchmaking Mm -hmm. companies would have? Yeah. So it's really, really varied because there's different ways of matchmaking and different kinds of clients. In the past, I was working with a um, startup, a matchmaking tech startup. I was the matchmaker. I was the recruiter. I was the event planner. You know, I was doing every single aspect of the matchmaking job. And it became clear to me very quickly that that's not a sustainable way to go through life because you can't do that job without working 12 to 16 hour days because wow. you also have to be available. If you're the matchmaker, you also have to be available in the evening when your um, clients are going out on their date. So you end up working like 9 a.m. until midnight. Oh, man. Um, yeah, so it's easy to look at matchmaking and think, oh, this is, you know, just a bunch of fairy godmothers that get together and like have drinks and make it happen behind the scenes. And that's not accurate. It's very much a business like anything else. So the company I work for obviously has matchmakers and there's the matchmakers that are working face to face with the clients. And then there's the matchmakers like me who are doing more behind the scenes stuff, We also have salespeople, of course, um, Mm. and it's very lucrative to work in matchmaking sales because it's like luxury sales of any kind, you know. Um, We have people who aren't matchmakers yet. They're kind of almost like a matchmaker assistant. So they 
are the ones who are available when the client is going on the date. They're the ones that are handling the actual planning of the date, you know, coordinating okay. the restaurant and that kind of thing. So yeah. they're kind of like, and, and their goal is usually to either move into being a full matchmaker or to move into sales. And then we have our, you know, our leadership team, like any other company does. We have HR people, we have recruiters. So yeah, I would say those are kind of the main roles. Of course, you know, we are an elite boutique agency. So Mm -hmm. we also have stylists available that are working with clients to make sure their date look is perfect. Um, They do some hairdressing sometimes to kind of get clients on track to meet someone. And we have a dating coach as well who's working with clients anytime an issue kind of comes up. The matchmaker is very much responsible for customer service as well. So we have to maintain a really good relationship with our client. Mm-hmm. And I feel that there's a difficult truth that needs to be told to the client that might ruin our relationship with them. We will sometimes bring in the dating coach to kind of handle that conversation. Okay. Is that based on feedback that you may get after the date if there's recurring themes? Absolutely. So okay. we we, I mean, of course, we want people to work with the dating coach. It can only benefit them no matter where they're at. Right. Some people are resistant to it. Um, but we do get feedback from our clients and from their matches. So if we're seeing a consistent issue come up on either side, um, and also a lot of times the issue is from our client of them simply having unrealistic expectations, for what a relationship or what dating is going to look like. And, uh, you know, that kind of ties our hands because if our client has a list of, let's say, 25 things that every single one of their matches has, we end up having to pass on people who could be really good for our client just because they don't meet these kind of expectations, which are often very unrealistic. So that's kind of the benefit of working with the matchmaker as well is they understand the dating industry and they know what you can reasonably expect to get when you're dating. And how helpful is that? Because I feel like so many people, if they don't have that handholding in a sense, or at least someone to talk things through, you just prolong repeating the same patterns. Yeah. That's why we have a dating coach because if we're having people who are just repeating the same patterns in their love life Mm -hmm. and they think they're just going to pay us money and we'll magically like, I don't know, 3D print their perfect person. Yeah. It's not going to happen. So they need to get the feedback from multiple people that something needs to change. And, you know, there's matchmaking companies that don't provide that feature. Mm-hmm. We have a really holistic approach. You know, like I said, we have a stylist, we have um, a dating coach, we have matchmakers, we have people working behind the scenes to make sure that it's a well-oiled machine. Whereas some matchmaking companies have none of that. So right. it can be, when you're working with just a matchmaker, you can be in a position where you're not getting the full story. You're not getting the full support that you really need to break these patterns. And that's fine as long as you're getting support behind the scenes as well, whether that means right. you're working with a therapist or you hire a dating coach on your own. But typically there's work that needs to happen to get you into a relationship. Now, many people may be surprised that matchmaking businesses are pretty strong in 2020 when dating apps are so prevalent. Along with having a dating coach on hand and the stylist, why do your clients seek you out when maybe an app is so easily accessible? Yeah. So there's a few reasons. We do work with high profile people. So these Mm. are people who um, are, you know, have somewhat of a celebrity status or who are just very well known in their community. You know, maybe they're a college professor or something like that. Oh, yeah. They don't want to be running into their clients or their students on a dating app. We also have people who are extremely busy professionals. They simply don't have time to spend several hours a day on dating apps. They're like, listen, I'm outsourcing this to you. Um, and I would say the third is just people who are burned out. Dating apps are exhausting. And, you know, I, I wrote an ebook on how to use dating apps effectively, but 
that doesn't mean that information is widely available to people or that they're even going to follow those rules. So when you don't have really good boundaries around dating apps and you don't really know what you're looking for and you're not listening to red flags, you end Mm -hmm. up repeating the same patterns over and over. Like we talked about before, people tend to have patterns in dating and dating apps because of the instant response and the instant gratification, they add fuel to the fire. So whereas before, maybe you would have one dysfunctional relationship a year with dating apps, you can have one dysfunctional relationship a month. And then super exhausted, super burned out, and really just desperate for external support and someone to um, you know, kind of hold their hand through the process because it can be so emotionally jarring sometimes. Right. So we touched a little bit on the clients that need a little help, maybe a little self-improvement. I think for many people being single, there's a lot of opportunity discovered likes and dislikes and um, really work on yourself. Do you ever come across people that maybe do too much of that and then run into that perfectionist mentality that gets in the way of finding a match? I wouldn't say that there's people who are perfectionists about emotional self-improvement. You know, there's sometimes people yeah. who are perfectionists about their body or their appearance. And then that can be an issue because they're looking for someone who likewise will spend four hours in the gym a day and looks like a supermodel. Yeah. Um and then when you're overly focused on the superficial, what ends up happening is you stop being as concerned about the emotional aspects or the actual qualities that will lead into a relationship. So people, you know, we work with very successful, impressive, amazing people and they're looking for yeah. the same. But unfortunately, sometimes they'll give us a list of, like I said, you know, 25 or 30 things they're looking for. And I often read the list And they're almost completely superficial qualities. Zero of the things they've written on their list are characteristics or qualities that will actually contribute to a successful relationship. So that can end up being a hamster wheel where you're just seeking this kind of ideal quote unquote person in your head that isn't necessarily the person that's going to be in a safe, healthy, functional relationship with you. Or it will even align with your lifestyle because let's be honest, if you're working 60 hours a week, do you want to date another person that's working 60 hours a week? You're never going to see each other. So yeah, I mean, I I think people need to think outside the box with their dating and not just to look for someone who's a carbon copy of themselves. So how do you dig deep into that list when they hand you the long list of superficial qualities? How do you interpret or what is the process for discovering what they're actually looking for. The process is always get them out on a date because Mm -hmm. once they go on a date, it becomes more real. Mm -hmm. And if you get them on a date with someone who maybe doesn't fit everything on their list, but they have a spark, then they're going to, you know, be more open-minded in the future. For me, from my end, I always look at the list and think, okay, can I actually find someone who meets these things? So for example, let's just come up with a list. Let's say someone wants, let's say we have a very successful woman. She's a lawyer. She makes $250,000 a year. She has her degree from Princeton. So she's looking for someone who also went to a really high-end school. So she wants someone who makes $250,000 a year or more. That's already Mm -hmm. 1% of the population. Okay. Now she wants a man. So that's half of that. Yeah. Now she wants someone who is of her own ethnicity. That's even smaller. And she wants someone who has all his hair, has never been married, and does not have children. Mm. Now she wants someone who shares her religion. Let's say she's Jewish. Okay. Like, what percent of the population are we seriously looking at that fits those qualities and is single and is going to be interested in dating her? Like, really, what's the number there? Yeah. So for me, because I'm more on the back end of things, I think of it very logistically. How many of these people exist? Where am I going to find them? Where do they hang out? You know, is can I realistically find a person like this? 
are there five people like this in New York City? Are there a hundred people like this? You know, so that's kind of the way my mind works these days when it comes mm-hmm. to actually being the matchmaker. We always want them to kind of soften and be more open-minded because if you show up on a date with the energy of, mm, I'm just waiting to find out if this person meets meets everything on my list. And then you're sitting there grading them like, mm, doesn't sound like he vacations enough for me. Doesn't sound like he makes $250,000 a year. I don't really like his watch. You know, you're going to be putting off really unattractive energy that's very controlling, not in your feminine, very unsexy, and very repellent to people because no one wants to go on a date and feel like they're being judged at like a beauty contest, you know? Right. This is such a fun industry that I'm really excited to talk about. So I'm curious to unpack the the dating aspect and the compatibility and the skills that you use in that as as well mm-hmm. as the career aspect. So I'd love to dive in for a second on I saw that you did a post on that um request that people have for a, for a date that makes them have butterflies right. and your response of what that actually means. Would you yeah. would you dive into that for a second and Talk about when people are seeking that sort of chemistry and energy. Yeah. So first of all, one of the most frustrating things I used to get when I was working with clients, um, you know, I would get on the phone with them after the date and they would say, yeah, he was great. You know, I really liked this and this and this about him, but I just wasn't feeling a spark. I wasn't feeling butterflies. I'm really looking for someone who, you know, as soon as I meet them, I just have instant chemistry and butterflies and blah, blah, blah. And for one, you know, that is just some like Disney BS because, you know, all relationships start differently and they don't necessarily start with this, you know, like fireworks and bird singing. Right. Um, (laughs) If you're looking for a quick fling, you know, that mentality is if you're looking for a quick fling. Okay. For a one night stand, you show up on a date, you think they're hot, you have chemistry and you go home with them. Well, if you're looking for a relationship, your approach needs to be totally different because you're looking for someone to start a life with, have a foundation with, share finances with, share a home with, raise children together. So you need to be looking for something very different. You need to be looking for someone with stability, someone with compatibility, someone who shares your values. The other aspects of you know, do I get butterflies? Do they make me hot as soon as I see them? So much less important because that's the kind of attraction that burns out after one or two nights. You're looking for the kind of attraction that's going to build and sustain you for a lifetime. So that being said, when you show up on a date and you have instant chemistry with someone, it can often be a red flag because Butterf- people don't realize what butterflies are. Butterflies is your digestive system spasming. And mm. why does that happen? That happens because your nervous system is very triggered. So when your nervous system is triggered, you go into fight or flight mode. And the first thing that your body does is it empties your bowels because it thinks that you need to run away. You're right. This is an animal instinct. This right. is an old, an old part of our brain. So that is your intestines spasming to empty themselves out. That's why you might also wow. get nauseous. Wow. And it's your intestines also spasming because they're sending blood to your limbs in case you need to run away. So your nervous system is perceiving a threat. It can be Mm. normal to feel butterflies before a first date, before a second date, before a third date. If you're consistently feeling butterflies, nausea, nervousness before you meet someone, that's a signal. I mean, every time, I'm talking every time, you know, after like six dates. Okay. That's not something that's sustainable for a a lifelong relationship, sorry, because one, you don't want to feel that way. It's very stressful for your nervous system. And two, Mm -hmm. an indication that your nervous system is picking up on a threat. So we don't always consciously perceive threats around us because we're not always consciously tapped into that part of our psyche. And also because when it comes to attraction, we're willing to overlook a lot. 
So it's why I always tell my clients and my friends, absolutely don't have sex on the first date. Don't have sex until like six weeks to three months in because you want to make sure that you're actually attracted to this person, that they're actually meeting what you're looking for before you do that. Because once you do, you turn on your sex blinders and you stop seeing red flags and your hormones also take over and want you to continue seeing this person. Because again, ancient brain is thinking, oh no, I could be pregnant. Mm-hmm. If I'm pregnant alone, I'm going to die because I'm not going to yeah. be able to take care of myself and I'm not going to be able to feed myself in my third trimester. And if I go into labor, it's going to attract wild animals. So I know this sounds very vulgar, but this is the truth of the way that our like kind of primordial brain is working and right. it very much impacts our the way we date. So our brain is afraid after we have sex that we're going to be impregnated and abandoned and die. (laughs) That's the truth. (laughs) Um, So it latches on to the person that you had sex with and you start to become super anxious, um, super concerned. This person's going to abandon you. You know, you're obsessively checking your phone. Suddenly you develop feelings for someone who is not the right match for you. And that's all happening because of our complex mind and the hormones that are being released when we have sex. Mm. Couple that with someone that you're not really a good match for, that your nervous system is already signaling that you need to get away from. It's a mess. This is why you start to feel, you know, crazy or you develop spontaneously develop an anxious attachment style when you're seeing someone because you're not listening to the signals of your body. Why would your nervous system be triggered by someone? There's a few reasons. And the biggest reason would be that your partner, this person that you're dating, reminds you of one of your parents. And the parent, it's the parent that made you feel unsafe. You know, maybe it's the emotionally withholding father, maybe it's the volatile mother, maybe it's the alcoholic. It's it's triggering something that reminds you of a previous trauma that made you feel unsafe. And that's why your nervous system is lashing out at you. People mm-hmm. interpret that as butterflies and as like, oh, we have instant chemistry. Yeah, you have instant chemistry and you feel like you've known this person your whole life because they're repeating a pattern that you have right. known your whole life. So if after right. a date, you're like, wow, he just gets me. I feel like I've known him forever. My, I have butterflies every time I think about him. I would, you know, don't, don't necessarily break it off right there, but that's a really big red flag. Mm, it's just that attraction or the familiarity of dysfunction. Yes. Wow. So how do you work with your clients or how do you recommend people balance? Because you do want some curiosity and attraction and but we don't want to get to the healthy or the unhealthy dysfunction familiarity how do you recommend people find that sweet spot between enough chemistry and curiosity but then leaving room if they don't feel that super magnetic draw to someone at first Yeah. I mean, you have to go out on at least three dates with someone before you can seriously say, this is not someone I'm interested in. And of course, you know, sometimes you go up on a date and the person is just like awful. I went on a date once and after five minutes, I looked at the guy and I was like, I'm sorry, I have to leave. Um, He was terrible. Um, So, you know, like, of course that happens. Right. Um, But let's say this is someone who, yeah, they're pretty much what you're looking for very polite, shows up on time, picks up the tab, treats you the way you want to be treated, and you're not feeling attraction. Okay, so a few things. One, give it three dates. And those dates don't need to be a big production where you go out to dinner and it lasts three hours. We're living in the time of social distancing. You can get on a Zoom with someone, meet mm. them coffee, go for a walk in the park. It doesn't have to be a big deal. But get in, right. get in front of this person in some way three different times. Because the the kind of attraction that you're looking for for a long-term partnership, it does need time to grow and it needs to be nourished. It's like a seed you're planting. And then I would say, you know, get clear on your list. So uh, an, an exercise I used to do with people is I would have them write their list and then I would have them look at their list and say, okay, how many of these qualities 
are actually things that contribute to a relationship. So if you're a girl who's five foot two and you have must be six feet or taller on your list, that's outrageous. Like I just, I I can't accept that because you're eliminating 75% of men who could be a good match for you based on a superficial characteristic that in no way contributes to your relationship and that is completely a social construct. It is ingrained that, you know, we're looking for men who are over six feet tall. There's there's no logical reason why a guy needs to be more than six feet tall. That's ridiculous. So um, yeah, I would say go through your list and scratch off things that truly do not matter, really don't matter. And you have to get hard with yourself and be honest because we're socially, we're socialized to be looking for certain things that are just not relevant to a relationship. So, and before you write someone off, you know, before you're like, well, I'm just not attracted to him, blah, blah, blah. Be serious with yourself about why that is. Are you not ready to be attracted to a guy who treats you right? Because so many women have only been in relationships where they're not treated properly. They have only seen relationships growing up where the woman is diminished or not treated properly in some way. They didn't receive the love they needed from their parents. And if that's the case and you haven't done some really intense healing work to fix that, you're never going to be attracted to the guy who's there to treat you right. It's never going to happen. You're going to sabotage the relationship because that doesn't feel safe to you because it's not familiar and you've never seen it. So my answer would be you have to be ruthlessly honest with yourself and you have to give people a chance. Yeah. And knowing how nervous you can get on a first date allow in how much of your personality doesn't come through. I think it's also helpful to, to reflect on, you know, when, when you don't feel that people have gotten to know you, how long does that take before you feel fully seen and maybe realize other people also take that long to show their many sides? I mean, no one is their best self on a first date, not even a matchmaker. My last relationship, the first date, I forgot to eat dinner and then drank too much and then started oh. talking about Israeli-Palestinian conflict and okay. then started talking about my taxes. So I literally did everything that you're not supposed to do on a date. And it ended up fine because I guess I was like charming enough about being a mess. But um, yeah, that's the other thing is don't drink on your first date because it does distort the situation and it distorts your personality. What are some other suggestions that you would have for dates that don't involve alcohol? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's good now because social distancing has made certain things more of a norm. So I have always said, start with a video chat date because, you know, you'll know if someone's horrible, you're going to know on a video chat date, they're going to say something offensive. They're going to be late. They're going to blow you off, whatever. So start there. So you don't waste your time getting ready, putting on makeup, getting your hopes up, showing up at a restaurant. And that's kind of that part of the activity of like getting ready, telling your friends, you know, like getting your hopes up is what becomes really exhausting about dating. So I always say Mm. start with a video chat to save yourself time and also to confirm that this is a real person because I think Mm. people don't realize that dating apps are very dangerous and there's no barrier for entry. So you want to confirm that you're talking to a person, not a cartel, not like an 80 year old creepy dude. And a dating app, I mean, sorry, a a video date is a good way to do that. Um, There, I think the first date should be very casual, you know, go get coffee. If you have anxiety, don't get coffee, get like, you know, decaf tea or whatever, but meet at a coffee shop. Um, And, you know, that kind of date can last ideally 45 minutes to an hour and a half. If you're really feeling it, you know, whatever, stay for three hours. But um, yeah, I just like that because it's very low pressure and it doesn't involve alcohol. Any date where you're moving is really good if you have anxiety. So axe throwing, going for a walk, going to the museum, doing a painting class, just anything that creates some kind of movement to release your anxiety and get your mind off of the fact that you're on a date so you can feel more natural. And it's absolutely true that, you know, 
first dates are awkward. You're not going to show up as your best and most authentic self most of the time. Right. How did you get into the industry? Would you tell us a little bit about some of the, you know, your career journey and how you ended up in your position? Yeah. So it's quite a long story. I apologize in advance. But um, I went to Rollins College, which is a small liberal arts school in Florida. And it's a very traditional liberal arts education in the sense that you're not being prepared for a specific career. You're being prepared to kind of be a human. Uh, So I took all sorts of classes, you know, like a gen ed I took was Russian folklore through Soviet film. So these are not classes that were geared towards putting me into an industry or into a corporate job. Yeah. So I got my bachelor's degree in religious studies and I studied abroad quite a few times while I was in college. I studied in um, Jerusalem, in Prague, and in Krakow, Poland. And I felt like very much on the academic path. At the time, you know, I think my sophomore year, I did an unpaid internship for Senator Marco Rubio. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, this is a nightmare. I could never work in politics. I could never in a million years work in an office. I quit the internship because it was so depressing. And a few weeks after that, I manifested um, a job in working in nonprofit and it was a quote unquote real job. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I was getting paid. I had to go to the office. It was a really dynamic job that gave me a lot of different skills. Um, So when I graduated, I had applied to graduate school and my advisors wanted me to a high-end brand name university, I guess. Right. And I couldn't make the numbers make sense. So I applied to graduate school in Europe because it's significantly less expensive. There's way more funding available and it's faster. You can do your degree in a year as opposed to two or three years. Got my degree 75% funded by scholarships. So I ended up paying less than $4,000 to get my master's degree. I got my master's degree in nationalism studies. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I just knew I wasn't ready for the job market and I needed some more time. I stayed in Budapest and I said, well, I'll just kind of like pick up some freelance writing work until I can find a job here. Within a few months, I was making more money freelancing than I would working a job in Budapest. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I did freelance writing for a year, which was great in a lot of ways. And then after about a year, I realized... It was causing me so much anxiety to not have a consistent paycheck and to be constantly prospecting clients. I just knew I needed something else. I signed up for a remote job board because I knew I wasn't going to move back to the U.S. at that point. And I saw posting for a matchmaking job. I applied as a joke because I thought it was funny. And they got back to me a few hours later inviting me to an interview. And I was hired six hours, no, six days later, sorry. Wow. And it was just, it's a perfect fit because, um, you know, it gave me a lot of flexibility. It required skills that I had developed working in nonprofit. So, you know, being willing to wear many hats at the same time, putting the client first, um, event planning. I had done a bit of that. And recruitment, because recruitment is very similar to fundraising, where you're just reaching out to random people, hoping they're going to say yes to what you're offering. Yeah. So through that, you know, working with that company was very stressful. It was a startup. Um, Being every aspect of the matchmaking job is very stressful. As I said, it's very time consuming. And this was a commission only company. So again, I had that stress of not knowing how much money I was going to make at the end of the month, which makes it very difficult to plan your life. Right. I also knew that what I was really good at was recruitment. I don't know why. It's just like it is Mm. really good at. So, And it's the part of the job that I enjoyed the most. So I kind of started trying to manifest a job doing recruitment. And I found a bridge job um, working freelance for an LGBTQ matchmaking company doing recruitment, you know, talent, talent scouting, whatever you want to call it for them. Yeah. 
And from there, I applied to work at the company I'm working for now in a matchmaking role. When I got on the phone with them, it was a very low pressure interview because I still had my job at the original matchmaking company I was working for. And I was freelancing for another matchmaking company, which I feel like gave me the freedom to not be stressed in the interview and to just kind of be honest and be myself. So really quick, like 10 minute interview because I had a meeting after and I just told them, you know, listen, I can be a matchmaker, but I'm a way better recruiter than I am matchmaker. So if you guys are ever looking for a recruiter, let me know. And a few days later, they got back to me and I had an interview with the director of my department. It was really brief. And she basically said, we're going to create this job where you can be a recruiter that's going to recruit for multiple of our markets. And, you know, I made it clear that I wasn't super thrilled about the idea of relocating and I really wanted to work remotely. So they created the position um, and they gave me a 30 day trial to show to them the job could be done remotely. And it was really nice to have a trial period because you prove what you can bring to the company. And because of that, I think I got a job offer back that was a lot more in line with not only my skills, but what I could, the value I could provide. And it was quite a generous offer um, financially. And I'm still, you know, I still have a relationship with the LGBTQ company. So Mm -hmm. that creates some passive income for me because I've already sent them a bunch of people and I send them people every month. So I get paid by them um, every time one of my people goes on a date. I love that you were able to have it be an open dialogue between this is what works for me, this is what I'm good at, and stand in what in in knowing where your skills lie so that it's almost like this is how I'm going to show up for you as a company but also stay standing firm in like no I really want to work remote and I think a lot of people would either have written the whole prospect off or you know compromised and moved somewhere and not stayed firm in who they are and knowing their skills so I think that's really really inspiring about hearing your story is this, it's just like finding a partner, it's finding the right match in a company that also respects you for who you are and how you show up in the best way. So that's very cool to hear that you were able to have a a job and a role that really does work for who you are and how you want to live. Yeah. And I'll, you know, I'll say two things about that. When you're honest with a company upfront about what you want, what you need, and what you're good at, you're not going to disappoint them right. and they're not going to disappoint you. You know, how often do companies hire someone and the person just tells them everything they want to hear during the job interview? And then mm-hmm. afterwards, they're disappointed. It's a lot like dating. You know, someone's great on the first 10 dates. And then once you're in a relationship, it's something completely different. So, the more honest you are, people people appreciate it. Recruiters are human beings and they don't want someone who's going to make their job more difficult. So if you're right. honest and you treat other people like they're also humans, not just like some corporate bot, you're going to have a lot more success and you're going to have something that's been more beneficial for both parties. And then, yeah. yeah, you know, it would have been easy for me to just have never applied to this job. So it could have been like, meh, I don't want this kind of job, blah, blah, blah. But you have to understand that companies are dynamic and they are able to shift and they need many different things at the same time. So just because the job doesn't, just because the job description doesn't say it's remote or doesn't mention the things that you're looking for, doesn't mean you can't negotiate those things. You know, maybe you're in a situation that you don't love, but you don't know what the next step is. Don't let not knowing keep you paralyzed in a situation you don't want to be in. Because action creates clarity. So you're sitting around Mm. thinking about how much you hate your job and how you want something else is never going to lead you to something else. You have to do things. And if you move, get a new job, whatever, and it's not the right thing, you're still in a better situation than you were when you were just sitting in a situation you knew you weren't happy in. Because one thing always leads to the other when it comes to action. So. 
And then on the other end of that, you know, don't be so stuck in the idea of what you want that you're unwilling to try new things. You're unwilling to be open-minded because it would have been really, you know, I, I never thought, oh, I'm going to be a matchmaker. That's not something that was on my radar. I didn't even know it was a real job. So I've seen that job description and thought, oh, that's not for me. I, you know, my degrees in political science, I need to be like moving to DC, blah, blah, blah. But when you're open and you're willing to experiment, that's what's going to lead you into the career that actually gives you everything you want and that, you know, is more in alignment with who you are. But there has to be a willingness to be open-minded and experiment and negotiate Mm -hmm. with yourself and, you know, with the companies that you work for or work with. Wow. Will you share a little bit about the flexibility and the quality of life that you have with your current role? And you also mentioned that it sounds like you're more of a salaried position right now versus some of the freelance roles. Can you, I know these are kind of a couple questions in one, but the quality of life and then like the the stability and freedom Mm -hmm. that are involved in your positions and other similar companies that you're seeing right now? So for me, something that I need to have a high quality of life is the stability of knowing that I'm making at least X amount of money a month because it's really Mm -hmm. hard to plan ahead when you don't know. You know, how are you contributing to your IRA every month when you don't know how much money you're bringing home every month? You're not doing it. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm basically on retainer. So I have a yearly salary. And I also have bonuses each month. So for me, I need two things. I need to know that I have like a base salary I'm going to hit every month. And I need to know that there's some flexibility to move up in that. Uh, You know, there's months that you spend more money and you need to make more money. There's things that happen. So with that, having my freelance job, I can also, you know, increase my income. Mm, Yeah. I have friends who, you know, sign a contract that says they're only, you know, I'm going to make $60,000 and that's it for the next three years with you. And that to me is not a good move um, because your life changes and your salary needs to change accordingly mm. over the course of yeah. three years. So on the other end, you know, I, I can't do the freelance thing anymore because it's just too uncertain. I need stability. Mm-hmm. Um, working remotely, I think is great because it gives you flexibility to accept roles and salaries that you might not have accepted in the past. So, you know, were I living in London or New York, it would be hard to live off of my salary, but my salary is on the higher end of what Mm. this kind of role would pay for a matchmaking company. Mm. So working remotely means I can relocate somewhere where my cost of living is going to be very low and my quality of life is going to be very high for the amount that I'm making. So I was living in um, Orlando, Florida, after I moved back to the U.S. from Budapest, and Orlando is expensive, you know, it just is. So I wanted a change, and I moved to Mexico. So now I am in Playa del Carmen, which is on the Caribbean coast, um, I just got an apartment. It's two blocks from the beach. It's a one bedroom. It's beautiful. Wow. And it's $750 US a month. Wow. And my studio apartment in Orlando was $1,500 a month. So that's amazing. Same salary. You just were able to decide where you wanted to be. So people, you know, should realize that negotiating a higher salary isn't the only way to have more money. You yeah. can make changes in your lifestyle and where you live. And, you know, I know a lot of people who get stuck in the mindset of, well, this is where I live because this is where I've always lived. Or mm-hmm. you know, maybe they moved to New York or Los Angeles after college and they've just been there. It's it's hard to make it in those cities, you know? Life is expensive there. So especially in this time where so much is open to change and there's going to be so many more remote roles on the market, really consider if where you're living is giving you the highest quality of life. To jump back to your role as the matchmaker finding the matches for the clients, where do you find the best quality singles or 
how do you work remotely to find these people and to do your job? Mm -hmm. So I can't share too much about that because it's kind of like industry secrets, but um, I will use any and all social media to find people. And yeah, when you're a matchmaker and you're working in the industry and you're looking at, let's say, you know, 200 profiles on a dating app a day, you get really good at spotting red flags and knowing who's actually serious about finding a relationship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on social media, I'll just reach out to people cold. I reach out to dozens of people cold every day and, you know, just reach out to them genuinely. Yeah. You know, like it doesn't have to be this kind of cheesy, canned, salesy message. It's just, right. like, hey, I'm a person that has this job and, you know, this is what I do. Is this something you'd be interested in? And, you know, our clients do pay fees, of course, but mm-hmm. people they go on dates with don't because those people are not guaranteed dates every month the way a client right. are just kind of chilling in our system until we have a really good person for them. Very cool. What do you love most about your job? Um, I remember when I was in college and I was like having a mental breakdown because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was so stressed about constantly having deadlines. I just thought if I have a job where I can live near the water and help people and make a decent amount of money and, you know, not have deadlines constantly above my head, I'll be happy. Mm -hmm. So that's basically what my job is. Like I live at the beach. I'm helping people. I'm helping, you know, the matchmakers, which is really rewarding. And I'm helping the singles. Yeah. And my life is very consistent and steady. There's not a lot of stress. There's no drama at my workplace. And I've worked at some really dramatic workplaces. Um, So that's great. And yeah, I mean, I, I just love that I'm constantly learning because humans are so interesting. And I'm really on the front lines of what I call the loneliness crisis, because we live Mm -hmm. in a hyper-connected and extremely isolated lifestyle, especially now, post-quarantine. Even before that, you know, we were living these lives where we're completely consumed by social media, and yet we're failing to seriously connect with other human beings. A big complaint I hear from our clients is that they're just so lonely and they feel like their friendships aren't enough to fill them up. And yeah. I think we need to look at that not only, you know, trying to find a rich romantic relationship because that puts so much pressure on your partnership if that's the only way that that cup of intimacy is being filled up. Mm-hmm. But realize that we also need to have intimate friendships as well and you know close relationships with our coworkers and our family and that kind of thing and we have this wall built up around us against intimacy and you know I think a lot of it is social media a lot of it is the political divisiveness we're dealing with and it's just kind of it's almost like a lifestyle disease like loneliness is a lifestyle disease so I guess I just feel feel like I get to be out here studying this huge problem that we're facing and, you know, helping people to actually get out from behind the dating app and meet people in person and, you know, circling back to your question of why do people come to us when dating apps are so available over the past year, I've seen that people just aren't going on dates on dating apps. You know, they're just sitting there and using it as this tool to feed their ego and have kind of like lost the ability to connect with someone and to ask mm. someone out on a date. And so many men and women complain to me that they're spending hours every day on dating apps and haven't been on a date in months. And, you know, they'll mm. talk to someone for a few days and then it just kind of fizzles out before they even meet in person. So, yeah, that's my long roundabout way of saying yeah. that we are in a state of crisis when it comes to intimate relationships in our society. Yeah. I think all of the technology that we have, be it social media or dating apps, are just the noise and they give the impression of connection. You know, if we see someone's vacation or see pictures of their baby and their wedding, we feel like we're a part of it, even though we don't have that same relationship dynamic that it used to take to be a part of those events. Yeah. And because of that, 
people don't have the training to be in a functional long-term relationship. So friendships and family used to kind of be our training ground where we would learn to be intimate with people, where we would learn to understand that everyone is flawed and, you know, how to navigate flaws and compromise with people. And what I'm seeing is kind of like like serial monogamy where people can't stay in the relationship for more than a few months at a time because they literally don't have the skills, the social skills to deal with another Mm -hmm. in an intimate way. And I, I do think that social media has impacted the way people date and have friendships as well because it it introduces this performative aspect to all of our relationships. So uh, people are looking for someone who's going to be their Instagram boyfriend, you know, who they're going to like post pictures of and have these like amazing dates and share it on Instagram. But they're not looking so much into the depth of what it takes for two you know, dysfunctional, flawed, messy human beings to come together in an intimate relationship and to create the stability to build a life together. Because, you know, at the end of the day, humans crave connection and marriage is actually the foundation of our society. You know, like a family, that's where society starts. That's where you're learning how to interact with people. That's where you're having potentially having children and raising them to be functional members of society. So when we're unable to create intimate relationships on a stable foundation, it's a serious threat to the functionality of our society. Yeah. And I promise I will wrap up in just a moment. I just have another question about your thoughts on being open and allowing for others to have imperfections and then the idea of settling. Mm -hmm. Because I'm sure that you often hear people stick so tightly to the list that you recommend them creating. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Where's that line? Yeah, so... Settling for me is when you're not feeling lit up or filled up by the relationship where you're not feeling seen. Most importantly, when you feel that you can't bring your 100% self into the relationship. Mm, So if you feel, you know, like my last breakup, I felt that I could only be certain versions of myself in the relationship. I didn't feel safe being 100% authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, that's settling. Yeah. Settling isn't saying, I want a guy with blue eyes, and then you date a guy with brown eyes, or I want a guy who's six feet tall, and then you date a guy who's five nine. That's not settling. You know, that's yeah. realistic. That's treating other humans as humans, not as props to your life on Instagram. Um, another thing that drives me crazy is when women are like, well, I want a guy who makes $200,000 a year. Like, well, one, it's a little bit unrealistic, especially if you're 25. Um, And two, you know, it's not fair to put people in this box of what they have to provide to your life because your life needs to already be fulfilled and you're looking for a partner to create a life with. You're not looking for someone to create a life for you. And, you know, I once and she was so successful. She made, you know, crazy money. I want to say like $200,000 a year or something. And she said, I want a guy who makes the same amount of money as I make or more because he needs to know that he's responsible for, you know, paying the mortgage and, you know, paying for our kids' mm. school. Tuition. And my money is just money for me. I'm not going to contribute wow. that to my family. And she did not have success meeting someone as I'm sure, you know, you can. You yeah. Can because the attitude of just like this person is here to take care of me and do what I want them to do is very dehumanizing. And you can't have a human to human relationship when you're treating someone like a prop or a bank account. Um, Mm. So yeah, I would say that the line is kind of emotional in the sense of like, are these superficial qualities or... Mm -hmm. Am I compromising on qualities that are actually hurting me on an emotional level? Yeah. Beautiful. 
I love that. Final question. What is the best piece of career advice you have either received or that you would offer to others? I think the best that I've received was like a quote I read, I don't know, on Instagram or something that said, know the difference between resting and quitting. So Hmm. I think there's a lot of times where we get burned out with something or we're so exhausted and we're just like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. there's a difference between not being able to do something anymore and just needing to rest and Mm. don't give ourselves enough opportunity to rest in our society. And that makes it really hard to know where your mind's at and what you actually want. So when you reach those moments of just exhaustion or, you know, you're so frustrated, you're, you know, you can't see which way you want to go, um, rest, you know, take a few days off, take a nap, give yourself permission to do nothing, literally nothing, you know? Yeah. You know, we often treat our rest time, our weekends as time where we're not working our job, but we're working at other things. Like we always have a project around the house or, oh, now's the perfect time for me to do all my laundry and all the dishes and like, you know, get the oil changed and blah, blah, blah. That's not resting. We really need to have more time where we're literally not doing anything and we're just completely disconnected from our computers and social media, you know, the one downside of working remotely is I check my email just obsessively, you know, I have yeah. around my email. So that often makes it difficult for me mm. appropriate rest time. That's a really, really important factor for people to consider, especially if they're not used to doing remote work, right. having boundaries around when you're working and when you're not, especially if you don't have hours and you, you know, are there and leave everything at your desk, it can follow you. Yeah. I mean, I'm surprised I haven't checked my email through this interview. <laughs> there um, you go. But, and you know, when you find yourself saying like, oh my God, I hate my job, really ask yourself, do you hate your job? Or are you exhausted? Or are you exhausted? And if you're yeah. exhausted, that's an open conversation you can have with your boss of saying, listen, this is too much for me. Um, yeah. And I think we kind of, in our minds, we think saying that is a failure, but it's not mm. all your failure. You know, it's a, it can yeah. be a management failure. Um, they might need to hire another person. That's a conversation that we, you know, we just had at my job um, where two of our matchmakers were really overwhelmed. So it was an open dialogue we had over the course of a few months between myself mm. and the matchmakers and our director. And... Um, one person, you know, we moved them from a different position and then we hired another person. So mm. if you're overwhelmed, it doesn't mean that it's your failure and it doesn't mean you need to be stuck in that position or run away. You can negotiate what you need. Yeah. That's cool. Cause you're only sacrificing the quality of the work, which is then the company's biggest concern that right. your mental health hopefully is a concern as well, but you know, you want to yeah, make sure everybody's happy. Never wants to fire you, you know. But there's not like this grim reaper. That's it, it can feel that way in some industries, and you know, some industry probably is that way because it's very competitive. And there's different work mentalities in different parts of the world and in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. But firing someone is a very expensive thing for a company to do. And you quitting is also very expensive. It costs a lot of money and time to hire and train a new person. So you have the leverage to say, this isn't working for me and I need some extra help or, you know, something needs to change to make the situation work for everyone. Wow. Thank you so much for your time today. It's just been so fun to hear about your world in an industry that often people forget is still there. And probably in the time of Corona, an industry that's growing and thriving and very much alive. Yeah, it's definitely an industry. It's a it's luxury industry. So it, it can be very lucrative. Yeah. And it's very much growing right now, not just because of Corona, although it definitely is because people are very lonely, but yeah. people are done with dating apps. The, yeah. the dating app industry, I'm I'm very much seeing it suffering, um, and people not wanting to use it. So yeah, if you're good at recruitment, if you're good at sales, if you have experience in event planning or luxury brand management, 
definitely look into the matchmaking industry. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. And I greatly appreciate your time. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, I had so much fun. Big thank you to Isabella. I know that I found that conversation to be so inspiring and so expansive, both in the realm of career and love. If you also enjoyed that episode, share it with a friend. That's how I have found some of my favorite episodes and podcasts. Also, jump over, rate, review. Those are much appreciated. I hope that you guys are doing well. I will catch you next time on another episode of Defining Roles.